All right, yippee ki motherfuckers. Welcome to Movie Left, a uh, Move Left Idiots podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Monterullo, uh, joined here by my co-host, Comrade Dracula. Comrade, what's happening? yippee ki motherfuckers as well to you and yours this holiday season. Uh, if you're hearing this the day that it's been posted, it is Christmas, so Merry Christmas to everybody uh, and a Happy New Year. Jesus is still the reason for the season, but today... <laughs> We are here to talk about Die Hard. It's this is John. Nice beer. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! ...he'll never forget. This Christmas. It's a time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Get ready to jingle some bells and deck the halls with bows of Bruce Willis. Mother the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Alan Rickman. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee ki mother. Together in the greatest Christmas story ever told. I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. <laughs> Hans, Bobby, eat it, Harvey. Yeah! Holy shit. I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. Ah! Merry Christmas. Die Hard. This is their idea of Christmas. I gotta be here for New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I found, ever. found that today. Yeah, I knew there was like some. I didn't look for that. I just stumbled upon it, and I was like, "Oh, it's a little one of those alternate uh, rom com trailer." It, and it included things. the the greatest line in the movie: "The Hans Booby." Oh yeah, yeah. Which I don't. Guy. Just to to get right into it, uh, this was one of those films where they didn't write all the dialogue by the time they started shooting, and they were constantly doing rewrites. Uh, that line was ad libbed, and Alan Rickman's <laughs> reaction is completely genuine, where he's genuine, like, what, yeah. "What did you like?" First of all, he probably didn't even know what that <laughs> word means. I don't even know if I know that word means, but he's like, probably you know, British actor. This was his first film role ever let alone in Hollywood, he probably was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what, what does that Isn't word that mean? Nuts? What did he just call me? first fucking movie. Like that At age 41. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, British theater, the idea of going to Hollywood is kind of like, you just got demoted, right? So, yeah. <laughs> Well, British people come out of the womb like quoting Shakespeare, you know? It, it's it's like a second nature to them. It's fucking oh, nuts. totally. Totally. Um, so, yeah, th- th- we're, we're, of course, reviewing the uh, 1988 uh, classic uh, Christmas film, Die Hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, just off the top, this, this fucking movie just rocks so hard. Like, I know that's not a very critical analysis of it, but, like, uh, you know, typically on the show we'll do uh, either, like, a political documentary or or uh, biopics or things like that, or things that are ha- have a really uh, uh, political theme to them. This was just like, you know what? It's Christmas. Uh, we know it's everyone's favorite Christmas movie, obviously. Uh, <laughs> um, so we were like, you know, fuck it. Let's just bullshit about Die Hard for an hour because it's awesome, and why not? Um, well, but and, there, and we, we actually will get into some some interesting thematic 
elements of the movie that maybe are there oh, just under the surface. <clears throat> uh, yeah, well, it, it amazes me because, you know, we always rewatch the film right before we review it uh, within a couple of days. It amazes me how well it holds up. And oh, I think yeah. part of that's because, like, everything's become retro and neo again so much that 80s hairstyles and 80s, you know, sports coats don't look out of place anymore, right? So the film <laughs> yeah. doesn't look that dated, even though it's a very 80s-looking film. Uh, the, the music, for the most part, the score of the film isn't dated because it's kind of relies more on like kind of your, your sort of typical 1950s classic film score, right? Timeless kind of score. Right. And then of course you've got, you know, Ode to Joy, which you hear many, many times throughout the film uh, from when they first get to the party being played by this little, you know, quartet orchestra to of course, when they crack the safe, you hear it in all its huge glory. Uh, And you know, it's like, we're getting more into the themes already. I'll, I'll save that for later, but um, it's just a masterpiece of action filmmaking, but it's a masterpiece that holds up because of all the work they did to make the characters, what they were and to make the story, what it is and to leave room for improvisation uh, and make it fun. It's just a fun fucking movie. Such a fun fucking movie. So, you know, I mean, typically people like, not that people come up to me and go, "Hey, what's your favorite action movie?" But but if we're ever having a discussion with somebody about like the best action movies of all time, I'll typically my first instinct is to say Terminator Two. Uh, you know, watching this again, it's it's hard to make a case that it's not this for for several reasons. Um, number one, I, I think the reason that Die Hard is so timeless, like you were saying, it doesn't feel dated. I, I think the dialogue uh, is really strong in this film. Like it's not. It's not a typical 80s action movie cliche bullshit one line. And there are one liners, no no question, but it's it doesn't feel contrived like like a lot of Schwarzenegger movies, which I love, you know, but they, they feel very contrived. Like it's not real people. They're just, you know, set pieces in an action story. Die Hard just feels like a story about a real fucking dude, just a kind of, you know, slummy, uh, you know, New York dude, uh, working class guy who happens to be trapped in this fantastical situation. And I think that that's why the movie has endured for as long as it has, because Bruce Willis, you know, for whatever he is now as an actor, or as an archetype, when this movie came out, he was fucking David Addison for Moonlighting. Like he was a comedy guy. Like he wasn't yeah. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. And, and that's, they try to give it to at least a dozen yeah, different action some of stars guys. and none of them wanted it. And, you know, Bruce was like, oh, hey, pay me five million dollars, which people were like, that's crazy for a TV person that you don't you don't get to have that yet. Um, and yeah. And that's what makes it so relatable. Uh, you know, if you didn't have that, uh, the, the one liners wouldn't work if you didn't have great monologues. Right. You know, Hans give this mo- gives this monologue like he's some ideological terrorist to kind of trick people into thinking he has this like cause, which he doesn't really. But it's still well written. You know, it's still well written and well acted. Um, Or if you didn't have the scenes like just the the minute and a half argument between John McClane and his estranged wife that tells you everything you need to know. It's this great piece. Yeah, yeah, it's but it's expository dialogue, but it's as an argument. So you don't notice it that it's expository, Mm -hmm. but it tells you the whole fucking landscape of their relationship and why she's here and what's going on and who they are as people in a minute and a half. And it's the perfect argument. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a, 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 a argument between two actors that felt more 
like a real estranged married couple than that one it, it, one and a half minute scene. It does it does an amazing thing, which is it shows and it tells. Like the the, the big thing that they always tell you in screenwriting is show don't tell. You don't want to have your characters describe a scene that uh, you know describe some crazy event that happened to them. You want to show the crazy event that happened to them because it's much right. more compelling. Uh, it manages that that scene like you were mentioning, and it's a small subtle thing, but li- little small subtle things like that sprinkled throughout make for a classic film and you know they manage to uh, get across both their relationship and their characters and their characters personalities in that little like yeah like minute minute and a half scene uh and right from that scene it jumps right into this this insane situation uh where where bruce willis is running around without shoes and in a wife beater because uh, all of a sudden these guys came in started shooting up the building you know Mm -hmm. while he was in the bathroom well, it, it just adds an extra level of tension because, yeah. you know, you think about movies with action heroes where they like they're either their family's just kidnapped and it's like, oh, I have to save them because I love them so much. And you're like, eh, I don't care. Or they don't have any family or they're just like in the background and don't matter. Think about, um, you know, all the Jack Ryan movies where it's Harrison Ford or whoever the fuck plays him. Like mm-hmm. you, you know, he's got a family, but like you almost never see them. So you never have a sense that he's a whole complete person with uh, a personal motivation for what he's doing. It's just like, nope, government agent, terrorist, you know, that's, that's it. And you don't feel like you're watching a real human being that way. Here we have somebody who has a personal motivation. Of course, he wants to get out of this alive, save people, rekindle this thing with his wife. But, you know, it's not like they have a really nice, warm get-together and then shit goes wrong. They have a fucking fight and then shit goes wrong. Yeah. So it's like he's grappling with with that the whole time he's going through this trauma or this, you know, traumatic terrorist event. And you see it right at the end of this argument. He's just, you know, like bangs his head on the, on the frame of the door and he's like, oh, you really started to pull this off. Like he just... He knows he's already kind of like started to dig a hole for himself with her, you, uh, even when it was clear that she wanted him to be there. Yeah. You know, and just another real subtle little thing uh, that Bruce Willis uh, does really well as an actor. It, it's really hard to talk to yourself like when you're the only person in a scene as an actor and not have it feel super contrived. And it never really like, you know, stuck out to me as like a as like an awkward thing. And I, and, I, and that's actually really commendable because I, 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 that's like one of my biggest pet peeves in movies is when somebody clearly is talking to themselves for the sake of the camera, you know? Oh and, yeah, and, absolutely. But, and, and I never get that sense from when he does yeah. it, you know? Especially like, you know, a uh, perfect example, um, in the air duct, yeah, so, he's got the Zippo lighters, like, yeah. come out to the cook. <laughs> like he's just, he's, he's mimicking somebody else, but yeah. he's still doing it in a way where, yeah. It's like his own internal internal monologue yeah. where he thought it to himself, maybe. But you don't really know if somebody said that or he was that was the, the pep talk <laughs> he gave himself, you know? As opposed to like, you know, like that scene in uh in The Dark Knight Rises where Batman's on the roof and and, and Catwoman like leaves him after he turns around and he turns back around and there's nobody there and he goes, So that's what that feels like. And he like does it in the voice even though <laughs> oh, there's nobody yeah. on the roof. It's like oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. this is fucking silly. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> Yeah, well, you get the sense that people that know how to do it well probably don't ever actually do it, right? Their interior monologue is is solidified enough that they can do it in a way that Mm -hmm. sounds real. And I know people that talk to themselves like that. Christian Bale seems like the kind of guy that actually does talk to himself out loud (laughs) when no one else is there all the time. (laughs) 
I told you this wasn't a good idea. You shut up. And he's like, just no one else is there. He's talking to himself. Looking for a PA to scream at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why won't anyone listen to me? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But so, you know, and, and Willis is just tremendous in this movie. He re- he really carries it. Uh, but, you know, uh, Rickman, too, in his first movie role is just fucking tremendous. Absolutely tremendous as Hans Gruber. Um, <clears throat> you know, right from the start. Uh, so I, I just want to go through a couple of uh, thoughts I jotted down on the film. Sure. Uh, Argyle is the best limo driver of all time. Like, how, how fucking chill is that, dude? <laughs> Loyal too. He's extremely, like, yeah. He's like a therapist. You know, uh, he's he's great. <laughs> I I love I love how he just he he manages to cut through Bruce's icy exterior because he's just like like peppering him with questions. Bruce is just like, shut the fuck. But you know what, dude? Don't sit in the front seat if you don't expect to talk to the limo driver. Like, what well, it makes weird... me wonder, was there a scene that was cut or like a different version of the scene where he started out in the back and then didn't feel comfortable and then moved up Maybe. to the front? You know, because it, it seems well, like that know... was probably what he would his whole like, I don't get L.A. or I'm not comfortable with L.A. thing. Um, they show that enough. I think you don't need that. But still, the fact that he chose to sit up front says something you know that he does he doesn't like being carted around like that well and that and that's and that's why he works so much as an action hero because he's not again he's not a stallone he's not a rambo he's not an arnold schwarzenegger he's just a fucking guy and he's us like he's how we would behave in a lot of these situations like he's not super comfortable being driven around in a fancy limo when he gets to the party he's way underdressed you know he feels really out of place with all these rich like business class type people um and I and I think that that's why he's such a beloved character and such a relatable character because he is an everyman. And there's a real anti-authority, anti-establishment streak in this movie. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little later as we go through the uh, some of the other stuff in the film. But um, I, I I think that that's not an accident. And I think that you know between the screenwriter uh, and John McTiernan, uh, and he, I I think that that's something that makes the movie work as well as it does uh yeah well i mean he's he's not a rebel right but he's still you know like you sort of throw all these different things together into the character to make him relatable to everybody because you want the film to be relatable you want to make money right so Mm -hmm. you show that he's clearly not entirely comfortable with la like they're aware enough of how absurd la is to you know know that if you drop an l uh, new york cop into la they're going to be they're, they're going to be a little like tight-knit you know like they're not going to be comfortable with everything um and i love that you know when he gets into the limo and uh and they you know start playing run dmc uh the christmas song he's like i thought what about how about some christmas music he's like this is christmas music and it's just like and the track takes off right in 1988 rap hadn't really been around that long but they don't present it as though it's this weird like oh what's this weird black rap music thing to the audience they present it as though this is normal and he's the one that's just like slightly uncomfortable right Mm -hmm. so it's telling you it's it's normalizing like yes this is la this is you know run dmc doing christmas rap and limo this is normal right this is the world in which he's been dropped into so of course like everyone's you're going to get a bunch of different people who like you're going to get like people who are who are cops who like this movie you get people who are, you know live in la and like run dmc like this movie like they're, they're doing all these things right off the bat that that pull you into this movie if you don't like cops also there's plain love in this movie and i'll i'll, I'll get in i'll get into that later as we go through well, the, some of the plot points but yeah if you don't like cops you get to see some cops get shot 
So there's, well, well, no, there's, not even that bad. <laughs> every cop who's not Bruce Willis or uh, Sergeant Al is a hapless fucking moron in this movie. Oh yeah, they don't present um, the police as though they're competent, um, which is probably also a good choice. Um, so a, one nitpick I had while watching it that I, I took a note on. Uh, so like the first guy he he kills, uh, you know, big blonde uh, Nazi looking guy's brother. Um, so he couldn't fit into his shoes because he had small feet. Why don't you just take his socks to at least cover the bottoms of his feet? Um, well, I don't know how many construction sites you've ran around with just socks on, but you'll tear through the whole. It's not good. It rough concrete, yeah, but socks, no shoes. It tears apart really quickly. No, so but I, as I have a, no idea. <laughs> as opposed like, to no <laughs> shoes and no socks, he's fucking barefoot. Like that during the well, it just it adds to when 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 the protagonist is vulnerable whether emotionally physically or just doesn't have all of his clothes on um we relate more because we're, we're no, like course, oh shit yeah. he might he might die you know if arnold schwarzenegger's running around like oh we just got stabbed with an axe in the face and he's fine still like that's it it lends it's to a the way idea. to incredibly raise the stakes on top of the fact that he's already yeah. not like an action well, hero he's just and a you guy don't, you don't think anything about it for a while either you don't well it's like okay he's barefoot but he's running around a bunch of carpeted offices right or up and down uh, metal mm-hmm. stairs but that's it's you know it becomes part of the story obviously with the whole you know shoot the glass, um, <laughs> and then he he's completely almost just defeated and then he's yeah. picking shards of glass out of his oh, feet and that's God. when he has this huge epiphany and tells the you know his his man on the outside you know tell my wife I took me a long time to realize what a fuck up I was you know um, mm-hmm. so it, and it's like he's in this moment of extreme physical vulnerability that's when of course he. Uh, is emotionally vulnerable enough to really have some self-reflection. I'm I'm just saying, put that first henchman in like flip flops or something, just to to make it less <laughs> obvious that like, yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, but no, I, I mean, just just the sweatshirt. Guy. I'm a big fan of of things. One of the reasons I love The Walking Dead is all the signs in that show or graffiti in that show that like has yeah. a message that is is. In, funny or scary or what you know don't don't dead open inside you know that yeah thing. yeah um but it's all throughout the whole film you see stuff and i love that you know it's you see all these moments in the movie where they show him start to do something but not finish it and you don't know what he did mm-hmm. like the you know the the now i have a machine gun ho 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 or um <laughs> when he starts great. trying to like rig the c4 to drop it down the elevator shaft you're like what the fuck is he doing like yeah, you like, don't what the fuck are you doing bro <laughs> like you you get to see all these moments where he's he doesn't say anything or he says something you know mild uh, you know to himself but you can tell he's thinking something and you're like what is he doing how is he going to get his way out of this what's what's he doing but um yeah, you would think of anything he would have instead of taking the time to you know find lipstick and write you know uh, trolling messages on his victim's sweatshirt <laughs> that he would like you know like do something about the footwear problem. But yeah, but it, yeah, I just thought that was a funny little uh, not not quite plot hole, but just 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 a little maybe bonehead move on on John McClane's part. Um, so yeah, it's almost the opposite of plot armor, you know? Yeah, where, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, right after that, he, he gets on the walkie talkie and he, and he radios saying, you know, mayday, mayday. There's a, a stupid is that must, that it's gotta be the stupidest fucking dispatcher character of all time in a, in a, in a movie that he literally says like, there are people that have taken over the, the, the Nakatomi Plaza, you know, building or whatever it is, uh, with, with machine guns, you know, send everybody. 
they're like, sir, this is a private line. I'm not sure if you knew this, but this is a private line. You're going to need to call on a regular phone. And, like, Right. Well, anytime. A, <laughs> like, the here's, the th- here's the thing about like interpolice communications. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any question about who's calling who, that's why you give your badge number. Like that's how they identify each other from from department to department. <laughs> so well, but there, there would always have... well, you still have a badge number, like right? the, they, you know, NYPD badge number, da da da. Look it up. Okay, I'm so and so. Um, you know, it's yeah, exactly. It's it is a little bit of a plot hole. You're right. You're right. Um, well, but and it's just like even if that was a civilian, if a civilian calls through on a on a police line on a police scanner and says, "Hey, there's a bunch of fucking lunatics with machine guns." Um, I'm going to send more than one black and white to go invest, you know, to like casually go investigate the situation and then not tell the black and white what they're going to investigate. Well, fucking kidding me? <laughs> when they did send him, though, because I did a bunch of research, I was crammed for the test. Um, she tells him it's a code two, which apparently uh-huh. code two means it's a emergency, but to not run sirens or flashers to not mm-hmm. alert um the people that you're coming or at least not that they that you, that you know how urgent it is right yeah um so apparently when they set him in there code two it was with this awareness that something could be really really fucked up so but don't run the lights and sirens to alert them that we're onto it mm, yeah uh, i don't know whatever i that's i don't know if the filmmakers were that aware of it but that's what somebody had written on imdb yeah well, I mean, I, that, I assume if they put that in there, they must have been at least somewhat aware of it. That's that's interesting. Um, yes. Uh, so they send over Sergeant Al, who, who's another just amazing character. Love that dude. Um, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the dad from uh, Family Matters. Basically the same the character. Same character. <laughs> he was just like, well, let's make a sitcom about that guy. <laughs> and then they did it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um so then, you know, eventually they realize what's going on. They send the actual squad cars after McLean figures out that he should shoot the window out and start shooting at the car, which was really like a bit of a gambit, by the way, that he that that he didn't hit uh, Al because he, he really like shot the roof of that car up. <laughs> yeah, it could have been, you know, kind of leading the shots <laughs> a little or whatever. But yeah, he does yeah, actually he... shoot at the car. But I, I mean, if you shoot at a car, it doesn't, you know. Did he really shoot the roof of it? I thought it was mostly the hood and the I, side. I mean, I could be wrong, but when I watched it, it seemed like he he blew out a couple of the lights in the car. Like he actually oh, shot really? the like so. The, to me, it was like, dude, shoot in front of the car at least. You don't want to fucking kill this guy. He's got a radio for backup. Well, like, he's not going to hear the shots in the ground. You got to you got to hear the metal hitting the metal. Know, maybe. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, it, we'll it, just, just pretend he's that good little. of a shot that he can, <laughs> yeah, right. he, can he can like spray he, bullets from fucking, his hip. Yeah. No, he's fucking uh, dead shot from Suicide Squad. <laughs> he knows exactly where every bullet's yeah. gonna land. He's an IDF sniper. He knows where every bullet lands. Um, there you go. So, <laughs> so then the, uh, the 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 rest of the LAPD show up, and they have the idiot chief running the op, who's the principal from the be- Breakfast Club. I don't think that guy also like, played he, the same character. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't think that maybe that guy is perfectly lovely in real life. He could not play a like not a scumbag in a movie I, I would never buy him as like a nice guy in a movie how do i be like all right yeah. when's he gonna he become an typecast well I, I went back and watched the um siskel and ebert review of this and mm-hmm. they um whichever the i forget which one's which but whatever uh the the short portly one not the tall skinny one didn't like the movie because of that character 
the 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 what idiot l- lieutenant commander or whatever or lieutenant chief whatever he was and he's like, well, he thought it was unrealistic that a, you know, uh, a high up officer would be incompetent. And I was like, do you know how many fucking, let's not even talk about the police, but you know how many incompetent people somehow oh like God, climb the ranks? Everything. And, you know, because of, you know, their dad was the higher up, you know, my dad was the admiral, so I get to be the, you know, whatever. Um, it, it's, a, it's a characterized version of a character, obviously. Like the, the supporting characters, a lot of them are, are comedic foils, sure. But to say that it's unrealistic that somebody in, in a high position of power could be could, wouldn't be incompetent is just absurd. <laughs> of course, of there's course. totally incompetent people. Um, I, I love the subtle yeah. touch of naming him Dwayne, also because it's like could could you pick a bigger fucking douchebag name for like a cop yeah. than Dwayne? Yeah. Well, it doesn't even inspire any kind of like um, even the name like Brock sounds douchey, but it still sounds like strong. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dwayne's like uh, weak and douchey. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, but you know, you needed to show that the 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 working class uh, cop on the street was smarter than this guy who is high up in the chain of command, uh, mm-hmm. but not so high up that when the FBI get there, that they don't totally see how weak and dumb he is and kind of just roll over on him, right? So, the, you know, I, I thought the dynamic there was interesting um, between the smart cop who's on the street the way overconfident fbi guys and then just the idiot commander so it is what it is yeah um so you know i i i I jotted down while i was watching this the plotting in this movie is pretty flawless like there's a lot of little uh you know moments of foreshadowing things that set up um things you see way later in the movie uh and 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 really in really interesting uh ways for an action movie like i I, you know i i can't stress enough you know and i love action movies but a lot of them are pretty mindless i mean you know it it, it, and in this movie it's really you could tell it was written by an author and you know we the movie was of course based on a book although the movie departs somewhat from the book uh, and I have that listed later in the trivia section. I can I'll talk about some of those differences, but you can tell it was plotted out by somebody who actually understands story structure and foreshadowing and you know thematic elements and things yeah. like that. One of the differences was that in the book they were just straight up terrorists, and uh-huh. yeah. the the director of this film, what was his name again? The director, uh, John McTiernan. Yeah, that's right. And he did uh, Hunt for Red October and also Predator. Predator and Last both- Action Hero. I mean, Hunt for Red October is one of the best, like, taught suspense thrill. Not really yeah. an action movie, but like prolonged series of suspense where mm-hmm. almost nothing's happening, and you know, like just the you know one ping only, and like that whole long prolonged suspense scene. Like that takes some really fucking good direction to how to how to do that, oh, or to director, know that yeah. you know you're gonna have a, an end scene that has the suspense you want it to. Um, but he was like, you know, if we just have them be terrorists, it's not going to be a fun movie. You're going to hate uh-huh. these people, right? So he was like, well, what if they're just pretending to be terrorists, but they're just like petty robbers, right? Because you want to like the scenes that you're watching them in. Even though Hans Gruber is the bad guy, you want to enjoy watching those scenes and enjoy him as a character. Otherwise, you're not going to like this movie, right? So I, I thought it was smart to... You know, I always like it when a character's uh, stated intention is not their real intention, mm-hmm. whether they know yeah. it or not. So I love that his whole, like, he reads off this manifesto and this list of his, you know, comrades in arms that need to be released. And, and then they're like, they're like, who's that? He's like, I read about him in Forbes. <laughs> you know, like, he doesn't give a shit about any of that. He doesn't care well, about I, any I, of that. I like that, too, because he, 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 the, 
it's another reason I think that this is a really a working class anti-establishment movie because even though he is uh, a thief, he is like a rich prick of a thief. Like he's 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 mm, like a yeah. one percenter thief, and the hero that's trying to stop them is is you know John McClane, who's this working class. Uh, you know, guy again walking around in a wife beater or a guinea tea or whatever you know non PC name you want to use for that kind of shirt. Yeah, there's there's no good name for that shirt. Like <laughs> undershirt, no, but that doesn't no. describe it enough. You know. Well, um, in in to speak to the, I love that dichotomy. Of, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting too because you you see Takagi, um, at least the U.S. head of this branch of the. Nakatomi Corporation as being pretty kind and benevolent, empathetic. Um, but then there's a point in the movie where, you know, he's sort of accused by Hans of being greedy, uh, you know, whatever. And he's like, we're trying to help these countries develop. We're not trying to exploit them. So it, in the moment that he thinks this guy is a terrorist who doesn't like them because he believes he's being accused of being a greedy corporation, he tries mm-hmm. to defend it. He tries to say, um, you know, we're these are projects that, you know, and you see the big models, you know, and you don't know exactly yeah. what this corporation does. You know, they do a lot of things if they're a multinational, but you see like an oil refinery and then this huge highway bridge. So like, you know, they're involved in infrastructure projects and probably fossil fuels and, and other things we don't know. They don't say exactly. Right. But he's trying to defend the company by what he clearly deeply feels that they are a good corporation. But that brings me to the next part is they clearly are not a good corporation because they have <laughs> over half a billion dollars in bearer bonds, which were banned at the time, right? The, the production of new bearer bonds was banned in 1982 in the U.S. because they're basically dark money. It's basically how you launder and embezzle money. It's a, basically a piece of paper whose monetary value is itself, and it has no record of transaction, right? It's basically uh, an alternate state currency that has no... Uh, record of where it came from or who it actually belongs to. So the fact that the corporation has $640 million in bearer bonds says that, yes, they were definitely involved in extremely illegal shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, there, there, there's no, you don't, you don't keep, and that's a ton of fucking money in 2018. Right. Like that's, you know, but, but you don't so keep that shit a, in your basement if you're, if you're on the up and up. No, no. But like, that's clearly why would a corporation have that? Because they would use it to pay people doing illegal shit for them. Right. But the thing is, he didn't know the access codes for that safe. And you can tell he's being honest. He's like, I have no idea what's in. Like he says, he basically says, I have no knowledge of, of what's in that safe. I can't go in it myself. Uh, I don't have the codes. So the question is, like, did, was he lying or was did he really think he was a good guy working for an actually a really bad corporation? It's hmm. a good question. I don't know. Um, I don't think it matters, but it's still a yeah. Level but it's an like, interesting. The movie's sure. trying to say something with that, or at least trying to say like that. Yes, this corporation actually was really bad. Um, and you know, of course, John McClane's not fighting to save the bear bonds because you know we see them all go out the window at the end, and no one gives a shit. He doesn't yeah. give a shit. He's there Which to is save great. those people and his wife, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 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 you know, it is this big giant action movie with these amazing set pieces but it is at the end of the day just like a really grounded story about him trying to save 30 people from getting you know shot by these 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 uh dudes um so that's pretty cool uh i love the scene uh where where hans like fakes the american accent where where, where he stumbles across him and he just quick like that you know that's such a great little piece of writing to have him and and it's a great the way rickman plays it too where he 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 perfectly conveys like 
uh, like, oh, fuck, I'm fucked, and then thinks of it immediately. But it also, he conveys it well enough that you realize he's a smart person that that realized how he had to react in the moment to to flow off of his initial like you know panic oh yeah seeing John i remember the first time i ever watched it i was like what is he doing how does it oh wait he's he's changing his voice he threw <laughs> off the the british accent you know i'm like much younger when i first saw it so i didn't notice it mm-hmm. first but uh and then he, he like to make it really obvious adds like a little bit of like a a texas draw to it mm-hmm. yeah um but the funny I, thing I'm, is is the way that um i mean maybe you know this i'll just pose it as a question did you notice the thing that tipped off McLean? Well, so I actually have a I have a little piece of trivia on that. I, I can read that out to you. Uh, I probably read uh, the same uh, thing. We probably read the same thing. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, one possible way that John identified Hans as a terrorist involves cigarettes. Uh, John tells Powell early in the film uh, that the intruders are most likely foreigners, judging by their clothing and cigarettes. Uh, he also takes a pack of cigarettes, presumably made in Germany from a corpse uh when uh when john and hans meet john offers him a smoke which hans accepts and enjoys without a second thought an american would have noticed the differences in appearance and strength of the german product hans uh hans's lack of reaction gave john cause enough to be suspicious which would be the reason why he gave him an unloaded gun instead of the loaded uh exactly so again really subtle the things that are not even put into the film enough that you would notice it unless you watched it obsessively, like the people who write trivia for IMD obviously do. Mm-hmm. But the, they're the things that a good filmmaker is going to think about and yeah. think to put in there, whether you notice it or not, to make it believable. Because then the actors are queuing off that, and the actors are like, "Well, you know, I'm sure Bruce Willis was like, well, how do I, how do I, what, what in my cop sense would tip me off?'" that he uh, was faking it. And they're like, oh, well, he doesn't react to the cigarettes being different. And he's like, perfect. That's exactly what he'll do. And I'll, and, and as an actor, you're going to think that. You're going to be playing along with this ruse. And then your facial expression is probably going to change a little bit once you, in your own brain, go, oh, this is the moment where my character notices that he's lying. Right? And, and all of that is going to come through in the performance in a way that maybe the audience doesn't, isn't cognizant of the actors doing all those things, but it's going to be conveyed in a way that we pick up on emotionally and go, Oh, I can tell the character has his mood or uh, posture has shifted and something is different. Something's about to happen. And he plays it like that too. Willis, he plays it really well, like where he's very subtly tips off like, Oh, something he did just gave him away. And I'm not going to like, you could tell if you rewatch that scene that like he, 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 you know, immediately realizes this guy is one of them. Um, and that's a sign of, a, and that's really a sign of a good screenwriter too. You know, like Tarantino, it reminded me of that scene in, uh, in Glorious Bastards where they're in the bar downstairs and, uh, what's his face? Uh, Michael, uh, uh, I can't think of him now. Really good actor, but, uh, uh holds up his hand for, th- and says, you know, three glasses or three shots oh, or whatever. Bender. Fast Bender. Fast Bender. Yeah. Yes um yeah michael Lassbender. uh he holds up his hand for um, <laughs> to say three glasses and he holds it up with you know three the three middle fingers the way you know you would hold up three uh or you know presumably you would hold up three uh and you know that that subtle little thing gives him away to the to the german the nazi that he's sitting with right uh, that was because the, germans I mean, apparently yeah they 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 do it differently they do with thumb. their thumb finger or index, uh, middle, index finger. 
Right. But, but, but Tarantino couldn't it. help calling out his, his own oh, cleverness and he kills yeah. it, you know? Which but totally you, is, yeah, his ego ruins a lot of great parts of but his you, but, but you know what I mean? Like, if he didn't, if they just didn't have that scene where he explains that, that scene would have been a thousand times better. And I still love that scene, but it would have been even better if he didn't ex- had to be like, hey, guys, look how clever I am. You know, like in his fucking crack. That would have been way. brilliant because he does an insert shot of the hand, you know, with the way he holds it, like goes, yeah. so oh, yeah, he shot snaps it perfectly. to it. He didn't need to explain it. If people would have looked it up, or they would have been like mm-hmm. something about it. Would that have been a trivia piece later, right? and people would have been like, "Oh shit, son!" You know. But then he gets even more absurd with the movie, where you know Brad Pitt's terrible Italian accent it becomes a joke, <laughs> and like nobody still notices. Like that's not mm-hmm. even the way that the Nazis realize that they're not who they are. It's like come yeah, on, know, right? right? Whatever. To, and but, I love that movie still, but there there, <laughs> oh, are some, there are some big plot holes, but. Um, but that's not the movie we're talking about. Although I do eventually want to do that. We, for we the, do uh, tend to stray from the actual review we're doing sometimes. <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, so, and, and, but again, uh, Gruber's American accent. I love that whole scene. Um, you know, that fight that, uh, Willis has with the, with the, uh, blonde guys fucking amazing. I, I, it, oh, the, the big bad. Yeah. Uh, so, and you know, oftentimes when people say like what's the best like kind of fight in action movie history i'll go to like uh the fight from they live because that's such a long like realistic gritty looking fight oh, but it, yeah the, the 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 they live fight is probably the best fight scene in movie history um yeah and also the the best part of that is when he accidentally hits his car by mistake and he's like, Oh fuck, I'm sorry. <laughs> he he like laughs for a second. He's like, Oh shit. And then he like I know. Um yeah, but it's it's but still I, the best, but this this is definitely But up this there. is up there. This is top five for me. Cause like I and I forgot how good the scene was, and it goes on for a long time, but it just has a really realistic and it almost has like a Rocky feel to it, like some of the more realistic fights from the Rocky movies, you know? Oh yeah. Um so and I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, just uh, it's, there's so many great action set pieces. Like it's hard to really even pick out like a favorite scene or a favorite set piece. I love the well, you know, the, yeah, the even with... all of it feels very real because they actually shot it in Fox, um, you know, Fox's tower, Fox's the brand new towers, tower they yeah. were building. Yeah, um, so we had, they had all these you know an actual building they could do whatever the hell they want to. They had <laughs> yeah. to for legal tax reasons they had to rent it from themselves which which i can only imagine like what the lawyers had to do to to fill out those forms but um yeah it always feels better vault the bear bonds right exactly (laughs) those bear bonds were not fake um (laughs) it's always great when you shoot things in a real location because you you know you have to work with what's there instead of design like if you had to shoot a scene where somebody has to crawl through like a fan and block it with a gun. Like you would build a fan big enough for a person to crawl through easily. Well, they, you know, obviously didn't do that. They're like, oh, you, we, I mean, they, they may have built some parts of the, the, you know, the, the set pieces crawling through. Obviously, he didn't really fall down a real elevator shaft. <laughs> they would have built that. But uh, it, it's the, the, the physical language of a, of a interior of a building, the way things look, the way things, you know, the way you have to light a real set versus lighting on a stage where you can light everything perfectly <clears throat> if you want to. It's very different. And it always feels more authentic when you shoot in a real location as opposed to build your own stage and you know on top of that this this comes from maybe my favorite time period in 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 movies uh like in general but specifically action movies and horror movies because this is before cgi was really what we see today um so a lot of these movies 
um have have are, they're kind of at the peak of practical effects like this like like the time period from like this movie to like the first Jurassic Park movie is like peak practical effects time period because the technology for CGI is just starting to come around and it's getting later getting closer to the millennium so there's a lot of new technology but CGI isn't good enough yet to use on film for major set pieces so what they have to do is actually blow shit up and actually, oh, yeah. you know, well, even have in Terminator Two, do things. exactly. Even in Terminator Two, those are practical explosions with a real helicopter yeah. hovering inches away. Awesome, <laughs> and it looks yeah. so much. It looks better than shit you see in movies now. And it's like, guys, spend the money, just do this shit again. Like you, it's, yeah. you're clearly capable. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Well, and even unlike Walking Dead, if they light someone on fire, they want to have at least a little bit of practical fire on somebody, mm-hmm. and then they'll augment it, which I think looks okay. But nothing looks better than just having absolutely everything you can shot in real life on camera. Um, yeah. It's you know you haven't watched um, Dunkirk yet, but no, I, I've been meaning to. Do you, almost, do you shoot that a lot practically. Almost all, yeah, and it's just it's so. Ugh, it's hard to make a movie that's more like pulse pounding for that. Every second of that movie mm-hmm. is, is pulse pounding and it's three totally separate stories all like converging on each other at a different rate of speed. Right. Mm-hmm. Which some people thought was weird. And I was like, no, it's perfect. It makes perfect sense. Like one story is a week, one story is a day, one story mm-hmm. is an hour, but they're all like coming to a point to an end point at the exact same moment. Right. Um, and the last shot of the film or the last image you see uh, I won't spoil it, but just the way that real fire and, and real explosions look, it's just, you can't top it. Yeah, you can. You can't fake it. Um, that's what I love about Nolan, though. You know, like for, for all my critiques of his his uh, characters sometimes, I he he is slavishly devoted to practical effects. And I love the look of his movies. Like, uh, you know, Inception, he actually built a, a hallway that spins like for that scene where they're fighting in the hallway and there's no gravity. And they're like, he actually mm-hmm. built a fucking hallway that spins rather than, you know, put these guys, you know, like in a CGI green room. Like, I, I just love his well, devotion yeah. to spending Kubrick, the money to make it work. In 2001, they didn't know if he could even do these things. And these weren't special effects. These were just practical effects that you were like, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to build an actual... Uh, space station that spins so this guy can can run around you know doing it like uh-huh. he can go jogging in zero gravity and we'll yeah. spin the fucking thing <laughs> and like people were like uh okay can you help us fake the moon landings too <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> be careful buzz aldrin will find you and punch you in the face I, it'd be worth it. It'd be. Wor- I would take a punch from from a man that had actually been to the moon if it meant that I had to lie about the moon lady being fake. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about the, the, how this movie accurately portrays cops as being, you know, pieces of shit. Like for the most part. Like, and the and when the FBI guys show up, they are just the the biggest motherfuckers on it. Like. They're so stereotypically Johnson and Johnson. You, yeah, John, yeah, the Johnsons. <laughs> fucking, um, you know, they show up. Of course, they bumble in. They n- don't know shit about shit. Don't know anything about what's going on. They immediately their their ideas to you know breach and uh, get a bunch of people shot and ki- or killed because they're idiots and incompetent. But uh, you know, I, it was just such a funny little subtle touch. So they're all wearing suits, obviously, uh, mm. and they get in the helicopter at that at one point to where they're about to like assault the roof. You know, like that assault on the roof. And the one, the one uh, 
uh, fucked up face guy, the white, the white Johnson. Oh yeah, the <laughs> moon face. Yeah, he puts on he puts on this this little backwards hat. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's the stereotypical like like L.A. SWAT cop hat, and he puts right. it on backwards, and it's just so fucking douchey. It it, it brings. Oh yeah, well he even <laughs> says like you know the first thing out words of like his mouth. Fagon. Oh yeah, and the, and then the other guy is like, "I was six years old, like or some shit." <laughs> but then the first thing out of his mouth is like, "Well, here's the number of acceptable uh, uh, number of civilians we can kill and still do this thing." So like, uh-huh. they're already yeah. like, they don't give a shit. These are just fucking. These guys just want to kill something. They don't care if it's the the civilians or uh, the bad guys. They're just there to to blow shit up and kill people. Um, yeah. And then of course McLean's out there like. He's like, no, get off the roof. They're going to kill us all. <laughs> and they don't believe him. And he has to start shooting at the at, over the heads of the hostages so they'll run away. Yeah. And then, of course, they start shooting at him. And it's, it's just like, he knows. He's a cop. And he knows the other cops are fucking are, are <laughs> a fucking threat maniacs. to those people. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, you yeah. know, every every time that they, the cops underestimate the terrorists, he's like, no, you don't know what you're dealing with. And it's like, he knows the, how arrogant the police are to think they're always going to outgun somebody else. And in this case, they don't, at least not the whole time. Yeah. It, but it's like he he just knows that like I'm the only person who can save these people. The terrorists and the police are both going to get these these hostages killed. That's actually an, a real subtle uh, trick of the movie that that the movie pulls off really well too. Is that McLean is simultaneously the smartest guy in the room, but also maybe the most uncouth. Like he's still he, he he's the smartest guy in the room without coming off like an egghead or like a, like a Sherlock Holmes type. Like he's just genuinely like has enough sense to be like like no and i know i i work with guys like this these people are fucking maniacs if we don't get off this roof they're gonna kill us all like i I just i just love that about the way they wrote him it's a real it's a real tightrope they walked with his characterization well and and it's backed up by the fact that you know carl winslow is on his level you know of being Uh a a regular uh, i mean he's he's on desk duty now because he killed a kid but he's remorseful about enough that he doesn't want to make that mistake again right Mm -hmm. but he he was a beat cop and he's street smart and we see them you know that quality in each other reflected by the way they talk to each other uh and and unreflected in the way that all the other cops talk to each other um so yeah definitely great right on that level yeah so just a couple little interesting trivia uh pieces that i found uh the scene where uh gruber and mclean meet was inserted into the script after uh rickman was found to be proficient at mimicking american accents uh filmmakers have been looking for a way to have the two characters meet prior to the climax and capitalized on his talent uh for faking an accent so that wasn't even in the original script and that's one of the most uh important scenes in the movie so that's i'm, I'm curious how the that whole ending kind of re- resolved after that but that's that's interesting um the scene where mclean uh falls down a shaft was a mistake by the stuntman who was supposed to grab the first vent uh as it as it, you know it originally was planned he slipped and continued to fall but the shot was used anyway and that's the shot that's in the movie uh it was edited together with one where mclean grabs the next vent down as he falls which i don't even understand how you <laughs> could have made that on that first rung if you watch the scene where he's like leaning way, you know, clearly oh, God, not was fucking, hundreds yeah. of feet up, but still like, how do you catch yourself on that thing? No, let alone no, it's, actually it's, fall and catch yourself on the next one. Like, yeah. Ugh, I would cut, cut your hands up and ugh, oh God. Yeah. yeah brutal. Um, <clears throat> much of the script was improvised due to the constant screenplay tweaks that were being made during the filming. 
uh, which we mentioned. And and I think that really lends to a lot of the movies uh, like lived in quality where it's not super like stilted. I, I like the like, improv for actors is not something actors like to do in my experience that I found, but it, you you get the best shit that way. Like as long as they're within the, the, oh, the realm yeah. of where you're aiming for. Well, I mean, you know that uh, you've heard the, the, the Kevin Smith um, thing he does where he has the big long story about when he met, uh, Bruce Willis, when he was a um, brought on set to do sort of punch up comedic writing for mm-hmm. one of the diehards, the fourth for, diehard, yeah. yeah. Um, and like Bruce, he was talking about how Bruce Willis had five other writers there. One guy he thought was his bodyguard was actually just one of his other writers. <laughs> so yeah. it's like when you're when you're Bruce Willis and you go on set and you bring five new writers to like fix scenes that you don't like. Along the way, you know, like he clearly had a very good sense of what he wanted the character to be and how to shape the character into something that, you know, he turned into five or, you know, four more movies, five movies total, uh, one of which is perfect. Um, uh, yeah. Two more of which are okay, and then two are, you know, I don't acknowledge their existence. <laughs> yeah, but no, but the third one especially I, I enjoyed a lot, the one with Samuel L. Jackson. Um, but yeah. the, none of them obviously approached the first movie. But I think Willis, and it's funny because this is his first movie, I think he learned um, that that's the way you get the most authentic dialogue and the most authentic characters it, it is to have a little bit of freedom to, you know, m- not put it in your own words necessarily, but to kind of be free-flowing with the ideas, not have to memorize a very specific uh, phrasing and a very specific cadence and all the shit when and I guess maybe because he was such a prominent actor after that he was able to kind of you know in 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 the diehard films at least say like look this is, we're gonna have writers on the set we'll punch this shit up as we go along like you know like that's just yeah well in in that Kevin Smith thing he even said like you know Bruce would talk to the executives and the executives would say well we don't like story, how this yeah. scene goes and he's like, okay, well, um, who else you got to play John McClane? Anyone else? <laughs> Anyone else? Can you get hired to play this role? Well, and, no. And the way, it, <laughs> the way he, he relays it, too, is great. And he's like, uh, great, yeah, you know, I, I totally understand. So uh, who's your second choice to play John McClane? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and... And then later. That, Bruce Willis is certainly like a more, very much more conservative person than us politically, but, sure. uh, you know... As far as having that level of commitment to a character for a long time, mm-hmm. even if it is an action franchise, where many other characters would, would just be like, "I don't give a shit," like that's just I played it on in a thing. Like it doesn't mean anything to me, right? So I respect his commitment to wanting to maybe not make the best movie, but do what he thinks is the best thing for him to have fun <laughs> doing it. Yeah. And later on, he's 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 very much an alpha though, like. Uh, Kevin Smith directed him in Cop Out later on, uh, which is not a great movie. Um, and he, he, like Kevin Smith, tells like horror stories about working with him. But I think that Bruce, if Bruce Willis doesn't respect you as the director, he he kind of runs all over you, so, and he can be a bit of a dickhead, like in those situations. But um, I think when he's motivated by a movie that he's working on and by the material, he really like turns it up and like behaves himself, you know? Cause like you, yeah. you look at a movie like Looper from that same time period and it's fucking awesome and he's great in it. Um, so I, I think it's really <clears> just, <throat> he needs to really feel, you know, a lot of actors do roles that they love and then they'll do like a paycheck movie and then cop sure. out was like a paycheck movie, sure. you know? 
Um, well, I think Kevin Smith gets starstruck sometimes too, uh-huh. and when he has somebody that's too big in front of him, he doesn't know how to direct, and he's just he turns into a fanboy, right? Mm-hmm. And if Bruce picks up on that and thinks that he's not doing the best he can, he's going to take over. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of lot of actors who have that much experience are going to kind of take over the set and say, "Well, this is how we're going to do it." You know, mm-hmm. I I don't want to direct it. You're going to direct it, but I'm going to tell you how you're going to direct it. Yeah, <laughs> so. Exactly. Um, so a couple other things uh, the main differences between the book and the movie are that in the book uh, he is visiting his daughter and not his wife uh, and in the book it's actually a terrorist attack as you mentioned earlier rather than an elaborately staged robbery uh, <clears throat> the lo- <laughs> this is weird the love interest in the book is a uh, flight attendant from the flight into LA and his daughter dies at the end of I, I assume the book it's it's kind of a downer <laughs> yeah additionally joe leland uh who's john mcclain his character is joe leland in the book is permanently crippled by the time that the book is over so some real good changes that the movie made for yeah the book. seriously um, um it, it felt like the like that storyline would not be a classic film or if it was it would be like a you know, um, something that Daniel Day-Lewis would play instead of Bruce. <laughs> yeah. You know, my left foot kind of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, just the depths of depression. Uh, so, yeah, you, you know, we, a lot of times we I, I rail against Hollywood for not doing the ballsy thing and doing the more mass marketable thing, you know, and, and I usually like art house cinema and the, the way that explores humanity in ways that Hollywood doesn't. But, I think that they made the right choices to make every character likable, whether they're the good guy or the bad guy, except for the guy from Ghostbusters, of course, because that is his role is to be the most unlikable uh, coffee stain douchebag <laughs> in history. Um, but yeah, it's just you love you love the villain, you love the other bad guys, you love the 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 douchey corporate coke head guy. Like you still like that character. Like he's a douchebag, but I love the character. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so then one other uh, piece of trivia I had, uh, as and this is another interesting little uh, subtle thing that the that the filmmakers do uh, that you don't really pick up on, but it's it's a subconscious thing. Uh, as the movie continues, the elevator chime uh, starts benign and continues uh, as situations start getting worse, uh, letting the audience know how out of control the things are. Uh, so it culminates in the final chime of the elevator blowing up, indicating that everything is now out of control. So like the, the chime so, subtly gets louder as like yeah, the situations. Escalate. And I'm, I'm trying to remember it. And it's like when they first get off and it's like the party and the, the little quartet is playing, da, 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 you know, it's like all it's just you, ding. The, the ding is like very quiet, very subtle. It's very just like ding. And then it's not uh-huh. just the volume that increases. It's like the, the attack of it is the more tone, of like yeah. a hard bell, like ping, you know, when the, do- it, yeah. and yeah, the little subtle things that you, as an audience member, don't notice, right? Mm-hmm. But it's there, Conscious and somebody who's who's the director or the sound designer, like those are the things you're like you are constantly looking for to do to subtly um, agitate the emotion. Like you're manipulating people. That's all. That's you're emotionally manipulating the audience by doing little things they don't even notice. Um, yeah, and, but it works. The shit works. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, yeah, John McTiernan, really interesting director. He 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 just you know came out of the gate swinging with Predator and Die Hard, two of the most you know uh, influential and you know best action movies of all time. Uh, and then he made a couple of other movies. He made Hunt for Red October, as you mentioned. 
made this movie in the 90s called Last Action Hero with Schwarzenegger, which I think is a oh, really underrated too? movie. I love that oh, fucking yeah, movie. Yeah, we've talked about that. I don't know if it was on or off the air, but I how, probably off the air. how well that movie holds up um, uh-huh. and what a what a great you know, sardonic jab at Hollywood that film is as well. <laughs> how, how, how like nobody got the fucking, cause the market, nobody knew how to market that movie. So nobody got it and then and it yeah. kind of flopped, but it's a great movie. And then he fucking fell off the map. Like he made that movie Rollerball in 2002. And, and after that, they're like, all right, yeah, we're not going to let you direct movies anymore. Rollerball. I don't even oh, remember. It was awful, was dude. A, it was a uh, remake of like a 70s movie. Um, Chris Klein was in it. LL Cool J. It was it was it was real bad, real fucking bad. Yeah. Um, but it, it's like the same thing that happened to the dude who directed Geely. He he also had like a really good career like early on, and then he direct you direct one bad movie and you're fucking you know dog shit in Hollywood. <laughs> but like, come on, give the guy who directed Die Hard some more fucking work. I'm sure he could bring some of these you know lifeless action movies to life. Let him direct a Maybe. Fast and the Furious movie. Like fuck. Oh, did you see the? Um, they're doing a spinoff, <laughs> spinoff of the Fast and Furious movies, but like for like an artful British audience, and it's got a bunch of, it's got the main guy in it, and the, but then it's got like one of the chicks from The Crown, like the, the it's got one. Vin Diesel in it, or it's got I think so, but then it's got like oh, Hydra Ellis is in it also, <laughs> but it's a bunch of it's basically um, Fast and Furious, but on the streets of you know Paris or whatever. So it's yeah. basically Mission Impossible I, Fallout, I, I, I guess. But th- yeah. those movies are really a guilty pleasure. I fucking love the Fast and the Furious. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not going to be art house cinema, but they're they're, oh, no. they're enjoyable in their own stupid big. But you, you know, know why they make way. billions of dollars is because you can show them anywhere in the world because you've got an actual diverse cast, and mm-hmm. everyone that's, in that yeah, diverse cast true. has something to do other than just has a line or two. You know, and it's like that's that's your fucking. There you go. That's how you and make. It's not a, a forced diversity dollars. cast either. Like it, 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 no. it genuinely feels like a like an organic. You know, like this is the this is the crew of people that would be doing sure. you know underground sure. street racing and and then well, bank heists it, and whatever else they end up getting. But into. it's also understanding the language of cinema in the way that people like Buster Keaton did when you didn't have any language besides the action. To mm-hmm. convey to people because so many things don't translate with dialogue. You look at all the different ways the title of Die Hard had to be translated around the world because yeah, just the term weird... Die Hard doesn't make any sense in Polish or Hungarian. They had to change it to like the man who doesn't die easily. I, I got news for you. It doesn't really fully make sense <laughs> in English either. <laughs> like, well, I, like I get it, but it, yeah. it's like a weird. T- it, it, it works because it's, su- it's it's such an, a punchy an, title. But of course, it's just a. It's an idiom into itself. Like, mm-hmm. what do you do? I die hard. Like no one actually says that. It's not a real thing. But <laughs> still, I die. But hard. but when you want to make a movie, um, you know, body language, body language and expression and movement becomes so much more important to tell a story that everyone can understand regardless of language, right? And and I think really good action films, like I just watched Mission Impossible Fallout uh, this weekend, and it may have been one of the best action movies I think I've ever seen. I got to watch it again to, to check, but I remember watching it going like, holy shit, there, there's things here I've never seen before and things that they're doing that are done better than I've ever seen in, in, in decades, maybe. Um, so they talked about that in some of the commentary, you know, that with the, if you want to make a movie that's universally good, that people watch all around the world, 
you have to go back to the people who did silent films, who had no dialogue whatsoever, and look at the way that they would tell a story with no words whatsoever, right? Yep. And plus, that movie gave us uh, one of the most horrifying images in all of cinema, where, because Henry Cavill had to shoot that movie and had his mustache, so they had <laughs> Uncanny Valley out his mustache in the in the Justice well, League. Well, yeah, reshoots. you get to finally see <laughs> Superman with the mustache, and it's actually pretty fucking awesome. Uh, you know what, like, it's, they couldn't have negotiated a thing where he wore a fake mustache for that movie or just didn't oh, have a mustache in that no. movie. No, I, I, I love it when people have their actual facial hair. <laughs> it just, I, I, I'm a big fan of fucking mustaches. What no, can I, I say? But like, to, to, to have to Photoshop, to, to have to, to CGI out a mustache and all of those, it's like, <laughs> just fucking, or let, let Superman have a beard when he comes back to life in Justice League. Like he did in the comics, like, fuck. Sure. Well, when you see the the when you see Mission Impossible Fallout and you see Superman wearing a fucking tie and a dress shirt, having the fucking like the best fight scene, just punching with this guy. Well, I, I love five that scene straight, from the trailer you know, where he fucking yeah. just like knuckles up, you know, not to steal an Ojeda line, but he fucking, fucking knuckles up and yeah. then they just go into it. that fight scene. It was one of the most brutal, well choreographed because you know a lot of choreographed fight scenes look choreographed. You know, like the Matrix, where it's just like, yeah, we both move all at the same time. Yeah. Thing Kung, Kung it just Fu looks like, like Kung shit. Fu fights tend to look like. The, video games you know yeah. so the the bathroom fight scene in mission impossible fallout that superman with a mustache is in where he like takes <laughs> off his jacket and fucking puts his dukes up is maybe the best hand fighting fight scene yeah i gotta watch i've it. ever seen so Th- check that it whole out. franchise has fucking great action and great fight scenes like it, you know tom cruise may be smart. a batshit crazy motherfucker but yeah. he, he he plays the shit out of ethan hunt like he really knows and the, like just all the double crosses it was like double cross after double cross so you're watching all this action but at the same time you, your brain is racing to keep up with what's happening you have to think about the plot and it's not because there's plot holes and you're like wait does that make sense but you're like holy shit holy shit oh my fuck holy shit like i was doing that through the whole thing that, that whole franchise people are going to look back on that the way we look back on 007 now like in you know in like 10 20 years whatever because like it, that really is the american oh, 007 yeah. but it was Absolutely. played by one guy which is even better um yeah it's as yeah. If, you know if connery never aged and was able to play 007 <laughs> his whole this career. is my natural hair <laughs> <laughs> oh shit all right well uh so what would you give die hard as a rate, uh, you know, out, out of five hammer and sickles. Oh, I'm going to give it five out of five, which is maybe the first thing we've reviewed that I've given mm-hmm. a total five out of five because it is so good and it holds yeah. up so well. And it does have little, little hints of a critical message about, you know, politics. Um, I noticed uh, the, the um, Nakatomi Corporation logo looks uh-huh. almost exactly like the Weyland Yutani logo from Aliens. And that might just be a byproduct of it both being films from the 80s. But if you look at them both side by side, I tweeted this out earlier tonight. It's uncanny how much they look alike. Like one yeah, just they, lo- they looks look like, like it was they were... flipped upside down. Yeah. Um, so we've already established on previous podcasts that the uh, Blade Runner franchise and the Alien franchise are, in fact, the same universe. And really, Scott has alluded to it, but he won't confirm it because he likes to kind of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. Uh-huh. So I would also like to. Uh, post or posit the theory that uh, the Die Hard universe also exists in the same universe as Blade Runner and Alien, simply Just because of the... in the past. Yeah, exactly. This was an evil corporation who had all these bear bonds that they got jacked for it, and we just saw a little glimmer of how bad they were, and then they eventually turned into 
you know, the Wallace Corporation and made replicants that then turned into Wayland Utani that made, uh, you know, uh, synthetic creatures that then created the, you know, the uh, aliens that they were hunting for and all that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, or like there's one guy that they went to for logos in the, in Hollywood in the 80s. <laughs> More than likely, it was, yeah, it was like a guy that just did like all the hotel chain logos. It was like, well, let's make a, a letter and make it really fat and puffy. And it looks like a building itself, the letter. Uh, yeah. More than likely so, that's the case, but still, a girl can yeah. dream. And, and I'm going <laughs> to, and I'm going to agree. I'm going to give it five, uh, I'll give it five bloody feet. Uh, or five jingle bells, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever, whatever metric you want to use. Yeah, we didn't really talk about the jingle bells that much, but that was, you know, we call it a Christmas movie. And a lot of people have yeah, said this is the best Christmas movie. Um, Bruce Willis, of course, said no, it's not. But you know, who cares? Whatever, he's old. Uh, yeah, no, he doesn't. <laughs> but they, they f- so yeah, they they feature the sleigh bells in this movie as part of the film score. And like every action movie after this would feature sleigh bells, whether it was Christmassy or not, because they were just like, well, let's do what Die Hard did. <laughs> so to, to people that that think this isn't a Christmas movie, like I get it. You're wrong. Like, no, you're wrong. And, and you know, that's that's fine. It's OK. You're allowed to be wrong. But we've decided it is a Christmas movie, so it doesn't matter. So- what anyone here's, else what, here, here's what I would posit to people. Do you consider Home Alone a Christmas movie? Undoubtedly, right? Like, I don't think anyone would disagree that that's a Christmas movie. Home Alone. No, no, it absolutely is. Um, there's nothing in this movie, uh, in, in the movie of Home Alone, that's that's more Christmassy than this movie. It just happens to take place at Christmas time. There are Christmas decorations, people saying Merry Christmas. Uh, this movie takes place at Christmas time. There are Christmas decorations, people saying Merry Christmas. He goes to a Christmas party. There's no supernatural elements. There's no Santa Claus. There's no reindeer. There's no stories about Christmas spirit. Yet people consider, and there's uh, tons of ultraviolence in Home Alone, and people consider that a Christmas movie. Yeah. I, I would posit that Die Hard it's is a burglary. Just as much... They're both burglary movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're both movies about a guy using I mean, traps to ki- to to maim burglars. He fucking John McClane straps a gun to his back with like wrapping paper and wrapping paper. Like he literally like uses the tools of Christmas to hide a gun on his back. Yeah. So so I so I would say by the transitive property, if Home Alone is a is Home Alone is a Christmas movie, then also Die Hard must be a Christmas movie. So it has suck to it. be. It even it's like you know they don't have snow, but it's raining bearer bonds. You know it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> yeah. Get over. And the America. movie ends with with with, with uh, Winter Wonderland over the end credits. Like you, yeah. you don't you don't put play that <laughs> over a non Christmas movie. No, no. It's clearly it is well established. This today, as you listen to this, is Christmas, and Die Hard is a christmas movie if not the best christmas movie yes absolutely yeah so uh that does it for us this week um or well for this episode uh come back and join us later this week though on friday uh when we will be discussing uh some shit i'm sure uh actually yeah it'll be um this coming friday it will be the last friday of this terrible fucking year i cannot wait till it's over Better things on the horizon in 2019, or or way worse things, I guess. Let's see. We'll see. We'll see what we happens. We shall see. Um, but yeah, so if you uh, like the podcast and uh, you haven't listened to our main show, uh, we do a uh, left-wing political talk show every week on Fridays, so if you want to check that out. Just how uh, left-wing are we? 
Uh, pretty fucking left. <laughs> pretty fucking left. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the name of the show is, of course, Move Left Idiots. Uh, and you can find that over at soundcloud.com slash move left. Uh, or if you're using the Apple Podcasts app, find us on the app. Uh, or, you know, find us uh, in the show section. You can rate, review, and subscribe over there. And that actually really helps us out, helps us get heard, helps the algorithm, uh, all that fun shit. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can uh, do that uh, one of two ways. You can pick up some merch uh, over at teespring.com slash move left. Uh, we have hats, mugs. Um, <clears throat> or we don't have hats. I don't know why I said hats. <laughs> we have shirts, mugs, uh, tote bags, uh, Wishful you know, all thinking. kinds of fun stuff. Wishful thinking. Maybe, I, maybe, we, maybe next year, by next year, Santa Claus will bring us some uh, move left idiots hats. Yeah. Yeah, no, that'd be cool. Um, but you can, yeah, and you can go pick that up over there. Uh, if you want to support the show through Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash move left. Uh, hopefully in the coming months, uh, we're going to be able to record some more. We're a little limited by our budget right now in terms of how many hours we can record. Wink, uh, just wink. Due to our, just due to our software program. But if we pick up some Patreon subscribers, uh, we can move to an unlimited plan and we can start offering some uh, Patreon-only bonus episodes. Uh, so we've talked a lot you know, off-air about doing things like uh, just doing an entire hour on a topic because we, we, we like to kind of expand on a certain topic um you know just just any kind of thematic you know like on on transportation or on it's uh, a good way to learn shit too like because anytime we're going to talk about something i don't feel like i know enough about i'm going to go fucking research shit so that i sound smarter than i actually am um but no but it's you know it's it's an experience we get to learn shit we talk about shit we don't rehearse anything we don't edit this podcast at all it's pretty much just an hour of live guys chatting Sometimes and maybe, you know, too. if you guys want to, maybe I'll add a tier on the Patreon where if, like you become a $20 a month backer, you can sell, you can pick an episode each month that we, uh, you know, uh, like a topic for an episode like that. And we'll, 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 we'll chat about it each month. So, you know, if that's something you guys would be interested in, tweet at me. Uh, you can find me at move underscore left on Twitter. Uh, and oh. Red can be found at uh, facebook.twitter.com mastodon.com no uh twitter at chaos right 1999 yeah we are of course on facebook at facebook.com slash move left idiots uh and come back and join us later this week for the main show and of course merry christmas happy holidays and yippee kaye motherfuckers Chilling with his dog in the park. I approached him very 